0: Club 400. The podcast
1: is on the air. William, what's going on, my friend? We got a big show tonight. I'm Uh, super excited about this one. I'm always excited about whenever we
0: talk about Harry Carey. You know me, man. That's without Harry Carey. uh, I'm not a
1: Cubs fan. You Uh, do get a little extra excited, a little extra jump in your step when we talk about Harry.
0: Harry Carey is my idol. I said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, His love and passion For the game, radiated right out of the TV and into my soul and transformed me into the Cubs freak that I am today, man. Yeah, You know, the Cubs freak. I like that. I might start calling you that. The Cubs freak. Yeah. And, uh, you know, look at where we are today. We're doing a podcast. It's because of Harry Carey. We got the club 400. It's because of Harry Carey. You know,
1: that's right. And we got a guest here from Chicago. Now lives in L.A., Yeah, Don Zaminda, who spent more than two decades with Stats, LLC, where he was the director of research for stats-supported sports broadcasts that include the World Series, the Super Bowl, the NCAA Final Four. The Z-Man, as we're going to call him for the rest of the show, is the author and editor of a dozen sports books, including the annual Sports Baseball Scoreboard and Go Go to Glory, the 1959 Chicago White Sox. Oh, we won't talk about that. <laughs> he's a Chicago native, and he's been a member of the Society for American Baseball Research since 1979. He is our first guest, who is first and foremost a White Sox fan. But you know what? He also likes the Cubs, and he's a great guy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Z-Man.
0: Z-Man, what's going on, buddy? You are literally... A walking encyclopedia of sports knowledge, man. Uh, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Don, and how you got. I mean, you obviously have been a big baseball fan your whole entire life.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, I actually lived on the north side. And then in the summers, so I went to uh, finish grade school and went to high school in Niles at Notre Dame. But um, my dad started taking me to ball games when I was six years old. And we were primarily White Sox fans, but I went to Wrigley lots of times, always enjoyed the experience of Wrigley, and kind of always wanted to work in sports, but took a little while to get there. Uh, I went to college at Northwestern. I majored in journalism, um, worked for like City Hall political reporting, that kind of stuff for a while, crashed out of it, hated that kind of work. I actually got a job at the U.S. post office in Evanston. I thought it was going to be a temporary job, and I stayed there for 21 years. Oh, wow. And while I was there, I started in 71. And in the 19, early 1980s, I got introduced to Bill James through his books. The legend, the legend
0: Bill James. Yeah.
2: That's right. And one thing that I did, I, as, as Cub guys, you will like this. In the early 1980s, I started doing my own research on how day baseball affected the Cubs because that was when Dallas Green had come in and he was starting to push for lights. It it took him a few years. And one of the things that I was trying to do when I started working as a statistician was to measure how much of a disadvantage, if any, the Cubs had by playing all day games in Wrigley when everybody else was playing night games. And um, so I, I kind of men- meticulously went through cup box scores going back to the late 1940s. And I did things like I tracked how Banks, Sando, and Williams did on the first game that they played on the night game when they went on the road. And I find out, find out that this really affected them very badly. And it was a big disadvantage. And one thing that I could see from the data was that whether they had a good team or bad the Cubs consistently faded late in the season. And I suspected that it was because of the fact that they were the only team that was not playing night games. And it was a difficult adjustment from them switching from a day schedule at home to a night, primarily night schedule on the road. Well, this stuff got picked up. Um, I sent it to Bill James. He publicized it. As the lights thing started to get serious, I became kind of a minor celebrity. I even had, at one point, there was a an organization called the, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, invited me to talk at their convention about this cub data, and they actually invited Randy Hundley and uh, Rich Nye, who were cub players on the '69 team, and they agreed with me that it was a big disadvantage. So that kind of put me on the map, and I started working with Bill and his group on a part time basis that got me in touch with john dewan who was really the guy who who got stats stats incorporated going and it just kind of took off from there i i worked for stats part-time starting in the late 1980s and then within in a few years the the organization had grown enough so that i could get a full-time job and that became my career for the rest of my working days
1: you know let me just follow up on one thing before we move way too far beyond it do you think the reason that had such a negative impact on the Cubs was because baseball players, really all athletes, but especially baseball players, are such creatures of habit? And, you know, playing day games and being the only team that did that all the time when they were at home, it
2: wasn't... Yeah, I'd really think... Absolutely, I think that had a lot to do with it. I mean, when they were playing... I mean, they didn't even have like any of those three o'clock starts like they started having in the, in the 80s and 90s. I mean, like every game was 120 and they had a doubleheader. They started at noon. They were they were done by six o'clock. So at home, you had like a normal working man schedule, somebody who worked a day shift and they go on the road. They start playing night games. They have to get adjusted to the lights. They have a whole different working schedule. Uh, their sleep gets thrown off. I mean, it really affected them in a lot of ways. Correct me
0: if I'm wrong, though. Um, Bill James. I mean, if you don't know who Bill James is, he's
1: you're probably not, the. F- you're not a baseball. Fan. Yeah,
0: right. I mean, I mean, I know. I, I I bought his book every year that it came out for a very long time. But uh, he was the first one, really, that was started breaking down numbers and, and published it. Am I correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. And, and in fact, he started this organization. It was called Project Score Sheet. Because back then, the only people that had play-by-play data were the Elias Sports Bureau guys. And so he wanted people to collect data, play-by-play data for major league teams so that he could have access to it and then they could computerize it and then analyze it. So I actually became one of the original volunteers in Chicago. And uh, we kept a play-by-play account, pitch-by-pitch account of every major league game. And that was kind of how the data started getting collected. Plus... Back then, I mean, early 1980s, people don't realize this now, but that's when PCs came in. So we were like one of the first people, first group of people who were able to use the personal computer for sports data. And you you didn't have to be like a big IBM guy or anything like that. It was just normal people who had access to computers for the first time. And that's really helped the company take off.
0: And Stats, I mean, tell us, tell the listener out there. I mean, I know you guys, you guys do all all sports, not all sports, but most of all of them. And you guys are the ones that supply the information to networks, uh, even to the teams and uh, announcers. And right.
2: Yeah, that's right. The reason I ended up in Los Angeles was that at one point, well, Stats had been a private company for a long time. And then in 2000, it got bought by the parent company of the Fox Sports Network. And one of the reasons they bought the company was that they wanted us to do their sports research. So I'm John DeWan and the guys asked me to move out to LA to start the research department. And we actually worked in the Fox studios the first couple of years. And it was a group of like 20 or 30 people, but we did all the Fox broadcasts, like the game of the week, the baseball postseason, and we did Fox NFL. But then we, they were happy with us picking up other clients as well, so... We picked up CBS uh, for NFL and March Madness. And we also started picking up regional clients as well, which is how we started working with WGN. I mean, we have worked with the uh, Cubs WGN crew really since, uh, really since like Harry died back in the late 1990s.
0: That's, that's amazing. And tell us about... I mean, you were there for twenty years, correct? And uh yeah, I mean you were pretty much there when it really started to, to grow and you know, now everybody knows who they are. Tell us the, how it evolved over the time.
2: Well, I mean it was it was tough going at first because nobody knew us and nobody trusted our our data. They weren't sure whether we were we were accurate or not. I mean when I, you, mean, I when, remember when, we, when
0: you guys first started, I know mean, you talked about like you guys got started. That's when the PC came out. But was there a time when people were just hand, you know, like typing this stuff on computers at the beginning, or I mean, typing it out on a typewriter, or how was it? How was how did it happen?
2: No, it, it really it really started with the PC because I mean, what those guys could do is like if you kept a play by play account, I mean, they could all gather it and back then they used to use these floppy disk and you just send it into the central location and and then they would be able to gather all the data together and analyze it that way. I mean, it was, it was pretty crude, but you you couldn't do that kind of stuff with typewriters or because there just wasn't enough of a way to gather and analyze the data.
1: So you're a major part of an organization that has really changed the game of baseball. I mean, if you think about how powerful, Stats have become over the past well it's 20, changed the game years its yeah. cha- completely changed the game. Some would argue today um in some cases, maybe even too much like uh, we've talked to some people who used to be scouts and they say there's like no room for the guy that goes out to a game and watches a player and Sees how they you know do, and they just by gut and feel know that this guy is going to be somebody that's going to make it. It's it's become so heavy on on the statistics. How does that feel to be like such a integral part of something that's made a change in a sport we've all known and loved for over a hundred years? Well,
2: it's great, and it's 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 kind of taken over baseball. I mean, like when we got started, there were a few teams that were early clients of ours. The White Sox were one. The New York Yankees. Uh, the Oakland A's, the Red Sox. And they were really like the pioneers. And and a lot of teams, like if, you, if you've read the, the book Moneyball or seen the movie, I mean, there was a lot of skepticism about what we were doing. I will disagree with you to an extent about the scouts versus stat guys because, I mean, in the early days, that may have been true. But I think now any successful organization – Values both. And, you know, it, it, it can't just be numbers. I mean, think about the Cubs. Think about, like, like you're a scout watching somebody like Javier Baez when he's, like, 18 or 19 years old. And you can compile, like, what kind of numbers he's putting up. But what a scout can do is he can see the person. I mean, he can see, like, like his athletic skills with what passion he plays the game how smart he is as a base runner, all that stuff goes into evaluating a player as well. I mean, it's it's not just numbers. Numbers are extremely important, but it's only part of the story. And scouts will always always be important.
1: And and I totally agree with you. We actually talked to a former Cubs player who was a scout and stopped being a scout because he said the numbers have kind of overtaken – what his role in the organization was, which was to watch that. But I think they'll, they'll always be that. And I, oh, absolutely. I had the pleasure of knowing some major league scouts that scouted people in the 30s and 40s and got some real uh, in-depth information from them about what they looked for in young players. And once they started going to the out-of-the-country players and you know different things that they were looking for and i i completely agree with your last point there's there's a a case to be made for both but you will notice today that most major league teams now are moving towards younger managers who heavily and and younger gms who heavily rely on the stats like joe madden here who's uh a polarizing manager in in a lot of a lot of people's minds he's a He's a going-on-the-gut kind of guy. He doesn't do the lefty-righty matchup all the time. He goes with what he thinks is, is right, and it frustrates the crap out of a lot of people. But, you know, he also won a World Series. So,
2: Well, that's right. I mean, in Los Angeles, we have Dave Roberts, who I think is a, he's a really good, intelligent guy, and I think he's a good manager. But the Dodgers are so numbers-oriented that I think sometimes it kind of gets in the way of how he manages the game. Like when the Dodgers were in the World Series in 2016 against, or 2017 against the Astros, Roberts had this thing where he you know he didn't want the pitcher to face the opposing team like the third time around. And what happened was, he started bringing in his bullpen earlier and earlier, and with somebody like Rich Hill would be pitching a great game, and he'd be gone by the fifth inning. And not only did they lose the guy who was pitching a great game but they wore the bullpen out. I mean, by the end of that world series, I mean, the Dodger relief pitches were just gassed. And I think it was one reason why Houston won. I mean, Houston, they have, they use numbers guys too, but I, I think Houston also, they follow the flow of the game. I mean, they're, they're not just wedded to the numbers.
0: I read a, I read an article recently where they were talking about the high salaries, uh, with the man, you know, I was, I think Madden's getting paid 6 million a year. And, but, uh, yeah, they're saying that uh, you know because of all the stat tracking that you know in, in you know obviously you got stats incorporated still around, but now they're bringing their these uh, organizations are bringing their own stat guys, and uh, a lot of times they're feeding uh, information to these managers has the games going on. Uh, how, what do you think about the evolution of that, and the, the, maybe the role of the manager is not is maybe just to make the calls instead of going on his gut.
2: You know, I, I think there's there's room for both. But I, I, I do think the analytics have shown that you kind of need a different approach to managing a game. And, and players are different, too. I mean, the thing about, you know, pitchers being less effective the third time they go through the lineup. I mean, I think that's that's really true. You can't let it get in the way of what your eyes see sometimes. But I think as a general rule, that stuff is is pretty valuable and and pretty important. And it also it comes to when it comes to things like evaluating players and signing players, I mean the analytics guys have known for a long time that once a guy gets into his early 30s, he's going to be on the downside of his career. And that's why you have all these free agents that are early mid 30s or late 30s having trouble getting jobs because It just doesn't make sense to pay them a lot of money when you can get a younger, cheaper player who's going to be better.
1: Right. Yeah. So you, you did like, just to clarify, you liked the movie Moneyball. Did that seem like it was something that was spot on?
2: Well, you know, I mean, like the scouts versus that guys, that was a little bit overplayed, but I, you know, I think it was, it was certainly an entertaining movie And, and the book is terrific. I mean, I would, I wouldn't encourage anybody to read Michael Lewis's book because he he really gets into this stuff in depth.
0: I mean, a lot of baseball people were kind of were, were mad over that book because he, you know they they felt like they were sharing trade secrets out there when, when that book came out.
2: Yeah, you know, one thing that I did for stats, I, one of the coolest things I ever did was the first year that ESPN did Monday Sun, Sunday Night Baseball. We were their stats people, and that first year. I used to travel with with uh, John Miller and Joe Morgan, and my job was to update the stats before the game. And then I would put these like little nuggets of information on on index cards and I would sit next to John Miller and I would pass some information as stuff was going along. And, and Miller is he's 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 so glib, he's so smooth. That whatever I told him, he would just kind of fit it into what he was talking about, like this idea just came into his head. But Joe, Joe, Joe didn't have much use for the stats guys at all. And he hated he hated Moneyball. In fact, he was convinced that Billy Bean wrote the book. (laughs) Joe, Joe was so adamant against against the whole idea.
1: Wow, what a cool! Was, what a cool job that must have been an experience. It really,
2: it really was. That that was really one of the highlights of my working career. I mean, uh,
1: you, I
0: mean, you were with STATS for 20 years, and you, uh, you were the vice president of the director of research. This is pretty pretty big. I mean, you were you came in the organization as it was just growing, and uh, when you when you left there and, and retired, uh, you're right near the top. So I think that's just. Uh, and, and before that, you know. It's just, I think it's an amazing story what you've been able to accomplish.
2: Well, I appreciate that. But it's, you know, the whole thing, is, it's a group effort. Like, like out here, like I said, we had a group of like 30 people and about half of them were computer programmers who knew sports. And these guys are just so smart. I mean, we got to the point like when we were doing a World Series game, we had these guys that knew how to crunch the numbers and they would anticipate things that were coming up and like, as soon as something happened, they'd have a killer number to just throw in and, and they could use it on the broadcast. I mean, these people are amazing. So how, like,
0: how, how would you, sh- like, if you guys are there number crunching, how would you relay that information uh, to the announcers or and get that out? So it could be said over the, the airwaves.
2: Well, a lot of it was done by instant messaging and the way we did it toward the end was we had, we actually had a guy in the broadcast booth, who was with um it was um smoltz and joe buck at the end and he we would be iming back and forth just using it's the messenger and as we found something we just throw it to him and if it was more complicated we'd send him an email with like a little chart so they could they could have a little bit more information but that that was such a consistent like like one of the things that i remembered was i think it was um when it was one of the years when the Royals were in the world series and uh, Escobar led off the game with an inside the park home run. And they wanted to know had that ever happened in world series history. And you have to have the data, but these, these guys are so quick. They were able to figure out that this hadn't happened since 1903 in like in like three minutes they had this information and they used it on the broadcast. It's, it's astonishing.
1: And it is amazing. Um, I've, I've actually have the fortune of calling a local, um, high school football team here and we don't have the level of stats coming our way, but information via text and tweets and stuff coming at you the whole game. It's amazing how these people can just weave it in. Like that's like they had it before the question was asked, you know?
2: Yeah, it keeps getting faster and faster. And I have to tell you, Stats always has a guy in the press box who keeps running track pitch by pitch of whatever is going on. And then it's, it's transmitted as it happens to the office. And I I used to be one of the early press box reporters, but it got to the point where I just wasn't fast enough. (laughs) I mean, they want this stuff like as soon as it happens. And I'm, I'm a little bit more deliberate. I want to make sure that everything is accurate. And I got to the point where I just couldn't keep up with it anymore. I had to turn it over to the younger guys.
0: And I I think this is uh, super interesting because, you know, obviously this is a a Cubs podcast, but uh, I mean, if you're a baseball fan, you'll appreciate it. But there's just so much stuff when you're watching a baseball game that is behind the scenes that you just don't, you know, there's so much more involved. I mean, just the game itself, there's things going on in the game, but behind the scenes in the, in the broadcast booth and the production of the game, and I, I think it's awesome that uh, we, we got to hear, you know, the stat side of it and how these, you know, these announcers, they're just trying to broadcast the game. They're, it's not like they're, they're coming up with this information right off the bat. It's you guys that are like s- zapping it to them, you know, and making them look good. Basically, you guys are right. you guys are like the, the, the hidden champ. You guys are the hidden champions there. You know, you guys are making it more interesting.
2: Well, really, they, our job is to make them look good. If they look good, then we look good. So that's that's how we worked.
1: So we had mentioned earlier that you've done World Series, Super Bowl, NCAA basketball. Uh, is baseball your, your favorite sport to do?
2: Yeah, I, I, I've always been. You know, I like the other sports, and I like them a lot, but I've always been a baseball guy since I was a kid. And, you know, there's just some, something about going to the ballpark and, being out there in the in the nice on a nice summer day watching a game that just appealed me to me from the time I was a kid, and I still watch a million games on TV,
0: and it's obviously the best statistical sport I mean, out there. Yeah, I was yeah, just going to yeah. say that it's not even close. You yeah. know,
2: it's, oh, that's right, that's right.
0: That's the beauty of baseball, and that's why we love it. You know, that's right. Tell Aziman, tell me about like uh, I mean, you, you you did it for twenty years. Tell me, tell us a classic story that, you know, when someone says, tell me a story about being at Stats, something, uh, what's the first story you're going to tell them?
2: Well, um, a story that I liked was, remember the, the 2001 World Series when the Yankees, they were, going, they were going for their fourth World Series in a row and they were playing the Diamondbacks? Yep. And it got, it got to game seven and uh, Rivera came in and
1: is that Lu- Luis you know, Gonzalez? Mark Grace. That's right. Mark yeah, Grace they, too. <laughs>
2: that's right, Mark Grace. Yeah. But we had a stat it was like it went back the Yankees through World Series history, not just Rivera, but like all time. The Yankees when they took a lead into the bottom of the ninth, they were like 128 and 1. Wow. In, in World Series history. And, and and we gave them that and they flashed it on the screen and then they blew it. <laughs> That's <laughs> fun. And, and, and so now they're 128 and two, but it was just it was just it, it just pointed out to how amazing it was that they actually lost that game, especially with Rivera on the on on the mound. And that that was really my my favorite thing.
1: And that's such a great story. That's why baseball is so great. You can go or watch on TV and you can see something every single night that's never happened before or hasn't happened in 80 years or, you know, whatever. And it's all because you guys are unearthing that information and giving it to the announcers, and we all know that. And, you know, can say we were there. It's really...
2: It's really true. I, like, like Zach Greinke had a triple last night, and they found out that that was the first time a pitcher had hit a triple and since like 2015. Oh wow! <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's,
1: it makes it's, it it makes it all more entertaining. I mean, it really it really does really adds it to. really does.
2: I mean, I mean, people run it down, and, and there are some broadcasters that just kind of go overboard with the numbers. But I mean, a lot of times it just puts things into perspective, and and you know. Tells you a little bit about how unusual some things are and gives you a better appreciation for what's happening.
0: So eventually you decide to retire and what what, what were you thinking like uh, as far as your career path was going to go? Obviously, we know we're going to get into this book here, but uh, when you retired, uh, what what were you, what were you thinking as far as uh, what were you going to do next?
2: Well, I would always been like a part-time writer, but I really wanted to do something on my own, major, like like most of the books that i I did with stats, and even the white, the book about it i I did about the fifty nine White Sox. they were collaborations with other people, but I hadn't really done anything major on my own, and I always wanted to do that. And uh, the way this Harry book came about was I knew a woman who I always go to the Sabre Convention, the National Convention every year, and these booksellers that sell sports books, Always have a vendors room when they're always trying to sell copies of the baseball books that they have on display. And um, I knew one of the women who was a, a editor for one of these uh, publishing firms, Roman Littlefield. And she just sent me an email and said, uh, "You know, we we knew about your work." She said, "Are you working on anything?" And I really wasn't, but I'd had this idea about doing a book about Harry. For a long time, but, you know, working full time for stats, it was not something that I could ever really get to until I retired. And then I had time because doing the book, it took over a year and it kind of became a job, almost a full time job for, for at least some of that time. When I was working full time, there was no way I could have done something like that. So it was just something that I wanted to do. I had the opportunity. The publisher actually came to me and it was, it was a subject that I didn't want. I'd wanted to write about because, I mean, I'd I'd been in broadcasting for a long time and Harry was such a giant in the field. It just seemed like a a natural thing to write about.
0: And for the uh, fans listening, uh, Sabre is the society for American baseball research. And uh, yeah, the book, when I heard that there was a new Harry Carey book coming out, I was so excited, man. I, you know, like I said earlier, uh, I am the biggest Harry Carey fan you could ever imagine. And uh, I know right after he passed away, there was, you know, three or four books that came out and uh, a lot of them were just basically, you know, you know, we, you know, just basically fan, fanboy books. I know your books a lot more in depth and you, you talk, I mean, I, I haven't read the book yet, but trust me, I will read the book. I've read the, I've read the other books, but the legendary Harry Carey baseball's greatest salesman. I mean, this book. It's basically come out, what, 19 years after he's passed away? Tell us about. 21. Tw- tw- uh, 21. My 20. math is off, William. Maybe because we had. Yes. That's not
1: surprising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, 20, 20, tw- he's, he's not a stat guy over here. You know, 20. Tw- yeah. Tw- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he likes hearing them, but he's not going to be the guy figuring them out anyone. <laughs> yeah, 18 plus three, 21. Okay.
0: Uh, but yeah, the, the book is tw- 21 years after he passed away. Um, tell us about. I mean, obviously, you had to do tons of research on this book, and then um, I've read some reviews that are all awesome. So, uh, and but they also say that this is not, you know, the fanboy book. This you, you also get into a little bit of a Harry Carey's you know, other side, or you know, we all have flaws as a as a person. William, I know you have plenty because I hung out with you a lot. But uh, <laughs> tell us about uh, the research that you did for this book and uh, the journey that it took to write this book.
2: Well, the more recent stuff was the easiest because there are a lot of people alive who knew and worked with Harry during his cub years, especially. And plus, having worked in broadcasting for a long time, like, you know, Len Casper, for instance, I'd known for over a decade. Tom Brenneman, who worked with Harry uh, on cub broadcast in the um, 1980s. Um, I've known Tom for a long time. Chip, Harry's grandson, um, the Braves were a client of ours, plus he had been a WGN when they were a client of ours. So I knew Chip as well. Um, I knew Dwayne Statz, who worked with the Cubs for a while and worked with Harry. Um, so I had a, and I, I even people like Tim McCarver, because McCarver was the Fox analyst for a long time. And McCarver had played with the Cardinals when Harry was broadcasting for them. So to begin with, I had, I had some media connections, which kind of helped me get started. As I got farther back, I kind of had to do more stuff like newspaper research. And, you know, we were talking about computerization earlier. I mean, one of the great things about now for somebody that's doing research for a book is newspapers. There's so many of them that are available online. And like, especially for Harry's St. Louis years, I mean, a lot of that stuff came just researching newspapers online and you can, you know, you can do basic almost like Google, Google searches looking for articles about Harry. And that was really like what the gist of the book for the early years came from. Plus another thing was that like, like Harry's early years. I mean, now there's these gene- genealogical sites like ancestry.com. I mean, you can find, Harry's social security information, which has his exact birth date, his exact death date. It has stuff about his parents, um, his whole family story. And Harry,
0: Harry lied about his age for a while, didn't he?
2: Oh, he did. Yeah. Right. He did. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things he said, he said that I used in the book was he said, I got about seven different ages and I use all of them.
0: (laughs) And obviously he he, he was an orphan obviously. And, um, Yeah, but, you
2: know, Harry was he was a good storyteller, but he was he was the kind of guy who would take a good story and make it a little better. And he'd take a sad story and make it a little sadder. So (laughs) he he said um, um, his mom uh, was sick and, you know, he never knew his father, which is true. Um, But he said his, his mother remarried when he was six years old and then she died two years later when he was eight. Well, he was actually 12. When his mother remarried and he was 14 when she died so it wasn't like this little like kid from the musical Annie you know like this little orphan boy he was a little bit older than that and in fact he moved in with an aunt and uncle um, who took care of him but I mean it was they were poor he never he really never did do his job his, his father apparently went away to World War One and never came back so I mean, even though he embellished the story, it was still a pretty rough story. And uh, Harry went through some some rough times when he was a kid, and it kind of colored his whole life, really.
0: And uh, he used uh, to—this is going off pure memory uh, when I read his old books. But he uh, used to listen; he used to go in his uh, car, listen to the radio, and listen to the uh, Cardinal games because, obviously, we all know Harry Carey. uh, you know, he 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 ended with the Cubs, but he kind of started with the Cardinals, and uh, and he used to listen to uh, the announcers on the radio for the Cardinals, and and, and that's how he kind of got started. Correct?
2: Yeah, it's true. I mean, Harry, uh, Harry had guts, and the Cardinals had like one of these old-time Bob Wilson type announcers who you know just kind of recited what was going on and you know, never showed any emotion about what was happening. They just kind of described the game. And um, from the time he was a young guy, Harry thought I can do better than this. So he, and back then the, the teams, the broadcasts were actually sponsored usually by beer companies. So Harry went to the head of the beer company and said, uh, why do you like this guy who's doing the games? And the guy said, well, you know, I kind of like listening to the game in the background and, I can read a newspaper while I'm listening to the game. And Harry said, why would you want that? Why would you want somebody who is so dull that you can read a newspaper? How is that going to sell your beer? Why why, why don't you have somebody who can get excited not only about the broadcast, but about your product? Because among other things, Harry, as we know, was a great beer salesman, also a great beer drinker. But The greatest uh, of all time. <laughs> I would say... If there was a Beer Drinker's Hall of Fame, Harry would be first ballot.
1: And so would Stu. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Me too.
1: You know what? I think that's why
0: uh, I I do what I do. I like to drink my beer because of Harry Carey. Because I met Harry Carey a lot. and He's the life of the party.
2: Yeah, well, I remember Harry used to do those games in the bleachers. I mean, back in with, like, he started that in St. Louis. And there'd be the fans in the bleachers. And Harry would buy beer for everybody while he was doing the game.
0: Yeah, Harry was the party when he was around. I, there's a classic photo of Harry uh, uh I have down here in club 400 taking a shower out there in uh at good old Old Kaminsky Park, you know. He, you know, that's the thing. I think that's why uh Harry was so beloved was because you know, he related to the fans. He related to the guy at the tavern down the street.
1: Uh he he spoke to them. Well, and he was with them after the game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: Well, that's right. And he, he was just unfiltered. I mean, what he said was what the fans were thinking. I mean, if a guy blew a play, I mean, Harry was, could be pretty merciless on him and sometimes it got him into trouble. But I mean, that was why the fans loved him because he wasn't sugarcoating stuff. So, I'm, I mean, no, I, go I really think that, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, and I've talked to some people who work with Harry like, like, um, Rich King, who's retired now, but um,
1: he's awesome. Rich was,
2: yeah, he, he's a great guy. And Rich did games with Harry in the early 1980s. And um, I asked Rich, I said, could could Harry broadcast today like he did back in the 1980s? And he said no. I mean, the, the game has changed. I mean, now the, the announcers are hired by the team, they're employees of the team, and, and the teams invest so much money in their players that It's like, you know, a product that they're trying to protect as an investment. And you don't want the announcer running down your product. So while Harry could be honest, he certainly couldn't be like he was when he was with the White Sox, where, I mean, poor Bill Melton. I mean, (laughs) he couldn't stick his head on the dugout without the fans booing him.
0: So Harry uh, is the... Was working for the Cardinals. Let's talk about Harry's the end of Harry at which was almost the end for Harry with the Cardinals. Was Harry, was, was there a hit on Harry Carey?
2: Uh, was there a hit on Harry Carey? Yeah, I, there's uh, rumors that
0: there was a hit on Harry Carey because he was sleeping with the the owner's wife.
2: Well, story
0: is that in the book? I don't know. I, I haven't read the book, but
2: oh no, the yeah the the story's in the book. Um. I mean, they both deny it. So it's hard to pin it down. I mean, the woman was it was Gussie Bush on the team. And the woman that Harry was supposedly involved with was the wife of one of Gussie's kids, his oldest son. And Harry didn't help himself by never quite denying that there was something going on. I mean, he was like 20 years older than she was. I mean, she was a very nice looking young woman. And Harry was kind of flattered that people would think that he was involved with her. And, you know, there were stories that people saw them together in a kind of romantic atmosphere and sort of had the idea that there was something going on. Ultimately, he denied it. Ultimately, the woman denied it. She gave an interview like 10 years later where she said, no, that we were just close friends, but there was nothing going on. I've never quite believed that, but it's hard to say. But one thing that was going on was that Harry had been there for a long time. And there were people inside the Bush organization that felt that Harry had become such a big star that he was almost bigger than the team and almost bigger than the Budweiser product at that point. And they felt that this is hard to believe somebody could think this about Harry Carey, but they felt that you know he wasn't as good for the beer product as he should be. And there were people inside the company that were kind of really straight-laced, and they were agitating to get rid of him. So on top of that, you get the story about him being involved with Bush's daughter in St. Louis, is a smaller town. The story gets around everywhere. People are starting to think bad things about Harry. And it it kind of snowballed. And at the end of that year, Gussie Bush, who had had been a big friend and supporter of Harry, just decided he'd had enough and uh, let him go. And and, Harry, uh,
0: was, and that was a, a w- Harry actually was in a bar, right? Walked outside and was hit by a car, right? And that just fueled the. Oh, river. that's right. Yeah, yeah.
2: It was, yeah. Well, that was that was just an it, accident. He it, was, and
0: he almost died, though, didn't he? He was in a coma for a while.
2: Well, it was. Well, he, that's another story that that Harry embellished. Okay. I actually got the. Po- I actually got. He I didn't even get the, the ground. Po- <laughs> <laughs> I got. I actually got. No, I actually got the police report from the accident, because Harry had had told the story, I'm hit by a car by this drunk driver, I'm lying in the street, I'm dying, uh, my lungs are filled, being filled with water and blood. And then <laughs> Harry told the story, this is great, he said, nobody knew what to do. And a Goodwill Industries truck was driving by, they see Harry in the street, they put him in the back of a truck and drive him to the hospital. Well, it's a great story, but none of it is true. <laughs> he did—he did get hit by the car, but he was trying to jaywalk across this busy highway. Probably, probably kid. half in the
0: bag, probably.
2: Yeah. He, well, Harry claimed that the, the driver was drunk. It was Harry that was drunk. To be honest, he did get tossed in the air. I mean, there's no question about it. He did get thrown in the air by this car. He did get both legs broken. He had some bad internal injuries. Um, but it was actually a police car that took him to the hospital. He was never really in a coma. He, he woke up like within 24 hours, and he slowly but surely recuperated. But Harry milked that story so much that the next year, by spring training, Harry was more or less fine, and he had thrown his crutches away. So it comes to opening day in St. Louis and everybody knows Harry's coming back. So they're introducing the players. And finally they say, and coming back from his long injury, please welcome Harry Carey. Harry walks out on the crutches, which he didn't need anymore. And he's walking slowly with the crutches, very pathetically. He dramatically throws one crutch away, starts walking on the other crutch, then he throws the other crutch away. The crowd goes crazy, and Harry goes into the dugout. <laughs> and Bob Gibson is sitting next to him. And Bob Gibson says, "Harry, why are you using those crutches? I haven't seen you use those in weeks." Harry says, "Bob, it's all showbiz." <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that's exactly. classic. And, and, that, and you know, that's why you—I that, mean, appropriately—you call the, the book the, "The Baseball's Greatest Salesman." And I couldn't agree with that's you right.
2: more. You sold me hook, right. hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> So, well, you know, one of the one of the things I, I I found out in doing the book was when Harry moved from the White Sox to the Cubs, the Tribune that was very controversial, and a lot of Cub fans they didn't want Harry because first he'd been associated with the Cardinals, then he'd been associated with the White Sox. The, the, so when the, you're a Cub fan, you're thinking, evils. "This is
1: yeah, this
2: is like sleeping with the enemy." Right, but. <clears throat> Uh, The Tribune did a survey of people who they asked, are you a White Sox fan? Are you a Cup fan? Are you just kind of neutral and like baseball? And they asked the fans what they thought about the move. And a lot of the Cup fans were against it, but they were more open to it. But the killer stat from the survey was 44% of the people who had identified themselves as White Sox fans said, we're going North with Harry. (laughs) And and I think that's probably exaggerated a bit, but you look at what happened in the 1980s. I mean, for most of the seventies and earlier, the White Sox were pretty competitive with the Cubs. There was always I think there were always more Cub fans in the city than there were White Sox fans, but there were a lot of years when the White Sox fans outdrew, outdrew the Cubs. But once Harry got established on the North side, the Cubs just beat the White Sox brains in every year. I mean, the White Sox won the World Series and the Cubs outdrawn. Right. I
1: mean,
2: yeah. I mean, and now it's like over two to one, and I think it's like something like 34, 35 years in a row that the Cubs have outdrawn the, the outdrawn the White Sox. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that you know that didn't used to happen.
0: Oh, uh, and we. I think everybody knows when Harry came over the Chicago Cubs, it changed. But well, it also helped that the Cubs in 1984 started, you know, for for the first time since 1969, you know, they got a team, not just a team, but a team with characters, with the biggest one right up there in the booth, you know, and the take me out to the ball game, uh, every seventh inning stretch. I think, well, I think the 84 season in general changed what Cub baseball is to the, today. But I think a big part of it had to do with Harry Carey.
2: Oh, for sure. I've actually got the TV broadcast to that clincher in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, and it's it's really exciting. You know, it's uh, I'll tell you the Cubs what, had, been, it had been so long since they'd been in the postseason. That was really But if you, really wa- you
0: want to go back before that with Harry and Jimmy Pearsall, now you're talking about some classic. I mean, I know, you know, it's hard to find that kind of material, but those two guys in the booth, Jimmy Pearsall and Harry Carey, those guys are, you, you'll never hear a baseball broadcast like that ever again.
2: Oh, that's for sure. You know, um, one of the guys I talked to in the book was um, Ron Rappaport, who's a, um, he was a Chicago sports writer for a long time now. He's out in LA. He just wrote this great book about Ernie Banks. Um, try to get him if you can.
0: Oh, definitely. His, bank, his
2: his Banks biography is just that, and it's outstanding. But, but Rappaport told me that when he covered the White Sox for the Sun-Times, uh, during the Carrie Trussell years, he said those guys were so crazy that the Sun-Times actually had somebody in the office listening to the broadcast in case Harry and Jimmy or Jimmy or both of them did something crazy that they would need to write about in the paper the next day. That's great.
1: Wow. You know, and I think that was the charm of Harry was the fact that He was great, you know, with with all of his great calls and and the seventh inning stretch and all those things. But my favorite part about listening to him was when the Cubs were bad and when they were losing big. That's a true talent of a broadcaster when they can make those times like you're down thirteen to two in the fourth and they make that rest of that game more interesting than when the players are actually playing. With his stories yeah, and what he had for dinner last night, he could make that interesting.
2: That's really true. one of the quotes I had in the book was from Jack Buck, who who broadcast with Harry in St. Louis for a long time. And then when Harry left the Cardinals, Buck came became the number one guy and became a legend in his own right. But but Buck said, I could never broadcast a game like Harry. He said if if I'm losing if we're losing a game nine to nothing. I just want to finish the game and get out of there. But Harry is convinced that the Cardinals are going to come back and win the game. And he puts that in the broadcast. And it's really true. I mean, Harry, Harry made everything fun.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Cup fans we're speaking with Don Zemenda who just wrote the book, just came out a month ago, the legendary Harry Carey baseball's greatest salesman. And I saw, which I I know it means a lot to you that granted Porter, gave you a big thumbs up. Obviously he's uh, one, one of the many owners of the Harry Carey restaurants along with Dutchie, Ryan Sandberg, a lot. Tell me, I was going to ask you Don. like you're doing all this for how, first of all, how long did it take you to write the book? And tell me like one awesome story of something you didn't know about Harry that you put in the book, uh, that, uh, you know, you were surprised to, to learn.
2: Um, well it, it, it took over a year, um, to do the book. Um, I would say the one thing that I found out that I, I really didn't know is I, I didn't know a lot about his Cardinal years, but um, I didn't know how controversy was with this with the Cardinals as well. And like one story that sticks out was this was like 1950 and Harry would, was broadcasting by then for about five years and the Cardinals had an announcer named Eddie Dyer or a manager named Eddie Dyer. And Harry was always clashing with him. So finally, at the end of the 1950 season, Dyer decides to resign as manager. They held a press conference. The Cardinals told Harry, stay away from the press box, because if you come, we're afraid you and Dyer are going to start duking it out.
1: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Stay away. Oh, that's funny.
0: Yeah, good old Harry. I'll tell you what, Don, I uh, I love Harry Carey so much. I've never talked to us on there, but I went to Harry Carey's funeral. And I'll tell you what. Really? As much as Harry Carey brought me into the game, he also taught me about, you know, you should not mourn the loss. You should celebrate the life. So I went to Harry's funeral. I got there at 4 in the morning. I waited in line. And Harry Carey's funeral... Was one of the greatest events I've ever been to in my entire life, partly because of Pete Vanakon's.
2: Oh, that's greatest eulogy ever. Greatest As eulogy
0: that. ever. Now, in Club 400, we have some glass cases, and I have a VHS tape of the, oh, man. Of the funeral, is... and Pete just nailed it. Mm. I mean, he yeah, was I've...
2: the best. I've, I've heard it.
0: Oh. I've heard it. I'll tell you what. And,
2: I'll and always... support it. All... Go ahead. Grant, uh, Grant the Porter told me that that um, after the funeral, they took him to the cer- to the cemetery, which is out in this plain my, my parents are actually buried in the same cemetery as Harry, um, All Saints. And they did like this long procession. I mean, they drove by Wrigley Field and Miller's Pub and some of Harry's favorite watering holes. And <clears throat> then they went to the cemetery and then they all came back to the restaurant. And he said, people just spent the rest of the night one after another, getting up, standing on the bar and raising a toast to Harry. And now every year uh, they celebrate the anniversary of, of Harry's passing by uh, uh, it, it, they call it the toast to Harry night. And uh, not only at the restaurant, but everywhere where people are fans of Harry's, they just, you know, raise a glass to Harry and and yeah, talk that- about his memory. <laughs>
0: Oh, It was just and the, one, the coolest thing was, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but they, you know, before they brought his coffin out, they they actually escorted the fans out first b- before the coffin. So I was escorted out and I'm walking down the center of the church and I'm seeing Chicago. I, I thought I was in the wrong spot. I really did. I thought I was like, what am I doing here? Cause I'm going down the, uh, the main aisle of the church and all I see is celebrities. And I'm like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here, but they did it on purpose. They put the fans in front of his coffin. And, uh, I'll tell you what, I did not want to go home. I mean, but it, it did, it taught me, you know, instead of, instead of mourning the loss, you celebrate the life. And like Harry, Harry as we all know would not, he would not want you to be sad. He'd, Probably want you to go out and drink a Budweiser.
2: Well, that's right. And like uh, you mentioned, Grant the Porter, one of the things that granted that was great was he got me in touch with Dutchie. and uh, I talked to her, and she's amazing. I mean she she does as much as anybody to keep Harry's memory alive. She's ninety years old, she's full of life, and you know she's still going and still talking about Harry and and uh, just keeping his memory as big as he ever was.
0: I mean, if you think about it, how many restaurants have closed? Harry Carey's restaurant is not. That's
2: right. I mean, it's, it's yes, think, of all, think of all the Chicago athletes who had, had restaurants, you know, Mike Ditka and Walter Payton and Jim McMahon and, you know, a bunch of other guys. And and Harry's the one that is still going.
0: You know, Donna, I'm so glad you wrote this book. I can't wait to read it. Uh, I, I will tell you one thing. Uh, I don't know how much you come back to Chicago, but we do have large charity events, and we a lot of times we include our, our book with the cost of the ticket. I would I would be so honored to include your book down the line in one of our events uh, for the fans of the Chicago Cubs in one of our charity events. And maybe we can even get Dutchie Carey out here. I've always wanted to get her out here. Uh, I've met her many, many, many times, and I've met Grant the Porter many times, and he's, I mean, that guy is a big sports collector of many, many memorabilia. And we have a lot here, obviously at club 400, but I know uh, you got to go. I, we appreciate your time. Cub fans. Tell us, Don one more time, how, I mean, you can get the book anywhere you know, where you can get Amazon Maybe. everywhere. Books are, you can get them, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's available on Amazon. There's uh the publisher's website is Roman.com. You get it directly from the publisher as well. And, uh, Bookstores should have it too. At least I hope so.
0: (laughs) No, yeah, Don, I'm gonna pick up my copy soon, and I'm looking forward to reading it and learning a lot more about Harry Carey. Uh thank you for you know your time and tonight, but not just tonight, but researching Harry Carey and putting together a great piece of history regarding the number one broadcaster and I think in the whole wide world, Harry Carey.
1: And all you've done with with your career and stats and how that's helped change the game and made it all enjoy all that more enjoyable for all of us fans out there.
0: Don, let me ask you this. When you were working at the post office, do you ever think you'd be where you are right now? It's unbelievable, man. You've actually made a big <coughs> mark in baseball.
2: Well, you know, I mentioned Ron Rappaport. I was actually his mailman for a while.
0: <laughs> no way. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, th-
2: so I think, well, you, I think, you,
0: know I think you
1: have a great story, man. I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
2: Maybe that should be my next book. <laughs>
1: exactly. There you go. Thank well, you so much for your time and being on the show. And
0: and like I said, uh, I'll be calling you down the line. I'd love to have you out here next year, maybe for a book signing. And we could, you move, know, what? I get to Chicago.
2: Books. I get to Chicago a few times a year. So let's get together. And, and I'll
0: tell you what, we'll be drinking a Budweiser together for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Have a great evening. Thank you. Club 100 listeners. Check us out. Timeless radio. You know that. It doesn't matter what's going on with the Cubs. You can check out any of our episodes at any time. Check us out on Podbean, Club 400 Radio. William, you got anything you want to say?
1: I'm just very excited. This Bud's for
3: you, everybody. everybody.
0: I can't do a good Harry (laughs) Carey, but we're going to end off this episode with Peef and John, get on it.
3: Good morning. Not going through the litany of all the celebrities here. Good morning to everyone. And thank you, Father Smith. Yes, I am Pete Benakin, a friend of Harry's for 48 years. And today he put me to the supreme test of our friendship. Because first I had to usher. Now I have to give this little, this is not a eulogy, it's a tribute. And I know I won't have to drive the hearse because he always told me I was the lousiest driver in the world. Our friendship and devotion towards each other, I think, was more like brothers. I think maybe I was a brother that Harry never had. But he has given me a trip through life that is hard to describe. Moments that I will cherish in my heart forever and give us the true meaning of friendship. I heard Father Smith say the mass of the resurrection. Please, Father, don't resurrect him. We couldn't go through this again. doing that clapping, I thought stop, he's gonna jump out of there. (laughs) Many of us know Harry through baseball, broadcasting the media, the business, or just seeing him at the ballpark. But our association was different. It was entirely personal. Talking, laughing, traveling together, playing gin rummy, or dinner with our wives. And through all of this, my wife Donna and Dutchie created a strong bond. They had to because they spent a lot of time together without us. <laughs> I always thought it was great to go to the Harry, Frank Maloney, I cheated him out of a ticket. I always thought it was great to go with Harry to the ballpark and not have to, to buy a ticket. But when then when Dutchie and Donna went shopping, I found out it was the most expensive free ticket I ever had. <laughs> to illustrate our very close relationship. There are many, we went on many vacations, trips, or whatever together. We were married 25 years. And I said, Donna, we've been married 25 years, so let's take a little vacation. Where would you like to go? She said, Hawaii. But do we have to take Harry? <laughs> Time will not permit me to tell you about all the good things. And yes, I want to talk about only the good things, because that's all we had, good times. It was no secret that Harry enjoyed a drink or two, and especially with his friends. And Harry's stamina and energy was legendary. A lot of people would say, it's nice that you're Harry's friend. He always talks about you. I'd say he has to talk about me. I've been his buddy for 48 years and survived. Not many people can say that. (laughs) And I lost my best friend, but I think I'm gonna live longer. They say, they say, what does it take to be such a close friend to Harry's? I said, it's easy. Unlimited stamina. A cast iron stomach. Keep your bag packed and your divorce lawyer on retainer. <laughs> How do you think your stomach could feel if after a night on Rush Street, now you got to top it off at 4 in the morning with a couple of banana daiquiris and hot si I haven't liked bananas ever since. (laughs) In all respect, Father, I think I have the record for attending 8.30 Mass at Holy Name Cathedral with a hangover. (laughs) After a tough Saturday night, I would have to drive Harry to the ballpark about 11 o'clock, so I'd slip over here for Mass. I'd get back to the hotel and Harry would be waiting, all bright-eyed, good night's sleep, full of enthusiasm. He'd slap me on the back and say, Didn't you have a good time last night, buddy? You don't look so good. I said, yeah, right, Harry. (laughs) The absolute thrill of a lifetime, and many of us here have experienced this, was to ride with Harry when he was driving. Without a doubt, the worst driver in the world. He had to be a driver's ed school dropout. (laughs) I rode with Harry probably more than anyone here. Dutchie would always make me ride in the front seat, the death seat. She'd curl up on the floor in the back seat. <laughs> the only thing we would say, Hail Mary, full of grace. It was always a great experience to have Harry ride with, with me when I was driving. He'd get in the car, and the first thing he'd say, is, hot in here, turn on the air conditioning, I'm punching around. He said, uh, get WGN on the radio, and I'd be punching the radio. Call Dutchie, I forgot to tell her something, now I'm trying to use the phone. Uh, get Rush Limbaugh. Uh, boy it's cold in here turn the heat up and i'm working on rear in everybody trying to drive through this traffic and i'm a little country boy from peoria where a, where a traffic jam is six car back up at a left turn lane <laughs> said call ed lynch that was a lousy trade see if the socks are on i'm weaving through traffic again and then he looked look at me and he said boy are you a terrible driver <laughs> One day we were late getting to the ballpark, and you know, Harry ne- never missed one minute of any game that he ever had to broadcast. And we got all tied up on a traffic at Belmont, and uh, now he's getting excited, and he said, boy, we got to get out of here, we got to get out of here. Now frustration sets in, and he says, just go up on the sidewalk, just go up on the sidewalk, I know the cops. I said, well, you may, you may know the cops, but I hope you know the relatives of those people we're going to kill when I go up on the sidewalk. Hey, I'm having fun. <laughs> I'm running a little over Father Bob, but they're liking it, so I'm <laughs> Harry's great for <laughs> stopping in a bar, ordering a drink. There'd be no action in there, so he'd say, let's go. I said, Harry, I got a full drink. He said, I'd just leave it. I said, where are we going? He said, I don't know. If I gave the people in this cathedral a day, all the drinks we left on the bar in 48 years, there's not one of you that would pass a breathalyzer (laughs) test. I was privileged to go with Dutchie to make the final arrangements at All Saints Cemetery. And I said, Dutchie, I'm glad you chose this type of internment because Harry and I'd be driving, and we, he used to laugh, and he says, Boy, when I die, I hope they don't cremate me. I'll burn forever. <laughs> we always used to talk about. Go ahead, I'll wait. I'll wait till you catch up. We always talked about donating our bodies to science. That was one of our big conversations. We thought, well, they'd get not too bad of bodies, but they'd sure be disappointed in our livers because they were shot. (laughs) I could go on forever and tell wonderful stories and experiences during our relationship. And if I could get Jack Buck and Tommy Brenneman, Ronnie Sando, Steve Stone, and Jimmy Pearsall in a room and tell Harry Carey stories, we could tape them and sell him for the biggest fundraiser in the history of Maryville. In fact, if we could just get Jimmy Pearsall and Harry in a room, it would it'd be a bestseller. But all these stories are not the only Harry Carey I knew. He was a person with whose unlimited energy level went off the charts, a person who loved people and they loved him. We have tra- traveled this entire hemisphere together. People always knew Harry. They waved, they wanted to shake his hand, talk to him, he would respond because, as we all know, Harry never knew a stranger. The young people was his target, and I was told that a marketing genius once said he didn't know how marketable Harry Carey would be because he doesn't relate to young people. The only thing I can say is this guy must have been the marketing director for Omar Gaddafi. <laughs> Everyone loved Harry young and old because of his zest for life. He was forever young at heart. After a game, Harry would have to be somewhere, or maybe in the last few years, he would be just dead tired. He said, let's get going as quick as we can. But invariably, he would stop and sign a few autographs, which turned into 15, 20, 30 minutes. I thought you wanted to get going. Yes, but how can I turn down those little kids? One day at the restaurant, there was a young man in a wheelchair, obviously handicapped and disabled. Harry went over, signed his cap, signed his shirt, had pictures taken with him, and a scene I'll never forget. The mother throwing her arms around Harry and saying, Harry, you don't know what you just did for my son. We went out and got in the car. Harry looked at me and said, so we think we got problems. We are taking a walk one day Way up above, somebody said, Hey, Harry, hey, Harry. I said, Harry, God's calling. <laughs> well, you know, and Harry in his brass way, says, What do you want, God? But <clears throat> but it wasn't God. Nine or ten stories up on the building was a scaffold with four construction workers. And of course, Harry responded immediately, and they hollered back, Can we get an autograph? Sure. The workers lowered the scaffold nine or ten stories, and for 15 minutes they stood there, shook his hand, and he signed autographs. He made their day. These were his people, the construction workers, the bus drivers, the cab drivers, the bartenders, and just the guy on the street. Also, the other Harry Carey I knew was compassionate, had a zest for life with an endless desire to be with people. He'd dive into a crowd like everyone was his best friend. Now Harry's up there in heaven with the old gang. And you know, because of our faith, we realized most of us must make a stop in purgatory for a little attitude adjustment, then hopefully on to heaven. Not Harry. He's in Ben Stein's limo, probably, probably got St. Peter driving because we all knew it took a saint to drive for Ben. <laughs> Where Jack gone has tipped the doorman, the ballet parker and the maitre d', Gino Michelotti, Gina Giorgetti's, is cooking the steaks, Emmett O'Neill is mixing the drinks, Bill Beck has got his shower set up there in center field, Harry's leaning back, lifting his glass, ready to call the game and saying, Holy cow, this is not so bad, I can drink again. <laughs> I love Harry's son Chris's line, he said, If my dad knew what was going to happen, he sure would have had a couple drinks. From a selfish standpoint, I have lost the best friend a person could ever have. But more importantly, the world has lost a giant of a man whose love for the game of baseball and the love of people should be an inspiration to all of us, an inspiration to live your life in the fullest. Have fun, cherish every moment. Baseball needed Harry Carey, and it's hard to imagine the game, the city, the world, without Harry. I sincerely trust that the players and the owners will take a page from the life of Harry and start to recognize the fans. As Harry would say, they made it all possible. For the good of the game, every player should be like Harry Carey. I hope they really think about this because if Harry was here, he would be right there signing autographs and talking to the fans our relationship has also put a new meaning on the word friends today was the day we were going to meet at spring training as we have for over 20 years and poof just like that my friend is gone if you have a good friend maybe you should put your arm around him or her and give him a little hug and say i love you my friend in this chaotic and wild world that we live in everybody needs the devotion of a friend Make an extra effort to respect all your friends, because when it's all said and done, the greatest treasure we have is our friends. I wish to thank Dutchie and the family for the great privilege of talking about my friend, everybody's friend, an honor that I will always cherish. I would like to conclude in using a phrase given to me by Harry's good friend, Jack Brickhouse. As long as one continues to live in the hearts of the minds they won, of the ones they left behind, they're really not gone. Harry had fun with the people, and a lot of people had fun because of Harry. The world will go on without Harry Carey, but I guarantee you it won't be as much fun. I love you, and I will forever miss you, my friend. Thank you.